invite you to start making your way back to your seats. Making your way back to your seats. And as you do, go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be continuing on in our series. The seven letters to the seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And this morning we're going to be looking at the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 6. I know you just found your seat, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me out of reverence for God's Word as we read Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 6. Hear, Hear the Word of the Lord. Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And if you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear, let, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of dead man walking. Dead man walking. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. Give me clarity. Speak through me. Let them not be my words, but yours. All praises do you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Dead man walking. So in 1880, uh, there was a neurologist named Jules Cotard. And Jules Cotard, I, I identified a mental disorder that would later be called the Cotard delusion. It's also known as walking corpse syndrome. It is a rare mental disorder in which the affected person holds to this delusional belief that though they are alive, they are actually dead and they don't exist. In 1990, there was a case that was reported of this delusion in a man from Scotland. After being in a motorcycle accident and suffering some brain damage, this man recovered enough to be released, but he was still going to need some care. So once he was released, his mother took him to where she lived in South Africa. And while in South Africa, the man began to believe that he was dead. And the report goes that the heat of South Africa convinced him that he was living in hell. He believed that his mother was alive, but she was asleep somewhere, and that this person that was with him was actually just the spirit of his mother showing him around hell. We are not judging South Africa, okay? It was a delusion, all right? 
Another example came actually recently in an article in 2005. It was an article that was entitled Recurrent Postictal Depression with Catard Delusion. Don't know what that means, but it shared an interesting story about a 14-year-old epileptic boy who experienced Catard syndrome after he had seizures. And so about twice a year, it really is a sad story, the boy, he suffered episodes of this delusion that could last anywhere between three weeks and three months. And so during these episodes, he believed that everyone and everything was dead, including himself. He described his body to his therapist as a corpse or a dead body, and he warned everyone that the world would be destroyed. Qatar delusion is a strange thing, and it's heartbreaking when you read some of these cases. I went a little deeper into Qatar's delusion than I ever intended to, and they are heartbreaking stories. This delusion that you are dead when you're really alive. But what our text is tailored to teach us this morning is that even more heartbreaking than being alive and thinking you're dead is when you're dead and you think that you're alive. See, that's the plight of the church in Sardis. They are moving, they are breathing, they are physically alive in this world, and their physical life has given them a false confidence that they are also spiritually alive. And while they believe they are alive, Jesus confronts them with this painful reality that they may in fact be dead. We see it spelled out there in verse 1 as Jesus introduces both himself and the church. It begins as write to the church, or write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here it is. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. There's a lot packed into this first verse. Speaking of himself, Jesus begins and he says that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this again, if you remember, it's part of that full description given of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, there's a long description of who Jesus is. And for each of these letters, he's picking a, a part of that big description and, and saying it to a specific churches. And we've learned at this point a few weeks in that he always picks what description of himself to use for a particular reason. Now let me refresh your memory a little bit about how we understand apocalyptic literature. Revelation is about the end times. It's apocalyptic. And, and, and the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. So if you're trying to understand everything as lit literal and not symbolic, you're going to have a hard time wrapping your head around what is an already challenging interpretive task. But so with that in mind, as Jesus makes this statement, we understand him to be using symbolism. Now some of the symbolism has already been explained to us. You go back to Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 and it says, The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So right there in Revelation 1, we know that the seven stars that he holds in his hand refer to the seven angels or the messengers and I interpret that to be the pastors of these churches. And so the seven spirits that Jesus is speaking of is a reference to the Holy Spirit that's at work in each of these churches. So when Jesus says he holds the Spirit and the messengers in his hand, 
Jesus is reminding the church of his omnipotence and his omniscience. In other words, Jesus is reminding the church that he is all-powerful and he is all-knowing. And so this tells the church in Sardis, this reminds us that Jesus sees with perfect clarity. Like they may be... They may be confused about their status. They may have other people confused about their reputation. But Jesus, he's not confused. On top of that, they might not possess the power to change themselves or the world around them, but Jesus does. And so the question we've asked for each of these opening lines in the letters is, why does Jesus choose to use this description of himself? when speaking to the church in Sardis. And to answer that question, again, we keep reading in verse 1, right to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, a few things we've got to note about this statement. First, did you notice that Jesus does not praise them for anything? It's the first letter we've come to where there's not some commendation given to the church. I mean, even the church that had bought into the the false prophetess Jezebel who were participating in sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to other gods. They were participating in idolatry. Even to these churches, Jesus still had something commendable to say to them, but he's got nothing for Sardis. It's somewhat unexpected, but here in this letter to this church, Jesus has no praise to offer. And this highlights for us the urgency with which this church has to reckon with their status and the seriousness of their situation. It is a scary thing to think you are alive, but to be dead. They think they're fine. They think they are faithful. They think they are alive. And here Jesus says, but you are dead. But notice why they think they're alive. It's fascinating to me. Jesus says, You have a reputation for being alive. You see, the second truth that this very first verse is positioned to teach us is that Jesus knows you beyond your reputation. Jesus knows you beyond your reputation. It appears that the church in Sardis had a reputation, and the implication is that it was a good reputation. They had a reputation for being a healthy church. Perhaps perhaps people in the city knew about them. Maybe they were feeding the poor. Maybe they were were taking care of the widow and the orphans. Maybe they were doing some good things. And so people looked at them and thought, that's a good church. That's a healthy church. It's alive. Maybe other churches knew of them. They were only 40 miles away from the church in Thyatira, which we just looked at last week. So maybe Thyatira, when they hear about the church of In Sardis, they think, man, that's a good church. They're serving well. But what Jesus is revealing to the church is this. He's saying, I don't care what other people say about you. I don't care if you think you are healthy or not. I know who you are. And I know you beyond your reputation. Remember last week as Jesus was writing to the church in Thyatira, he said that he is the one who examines hearts and minds. Jesus does not need the testimony of someone else to establish whether or not a reputation is valid. Let me try to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Just recently here at the center, uh, we're hiring for a new position. We created a new director position. We were hiring for it. It's brand new to us. So we did what most employers do. We posted a job and asked people to submit their resumes. Many of you 
applying for jobs, have had to send in resumes, tell a little bit about yourself, trying to build up your reputation. But one thing that you always put on your resume, it's usually towards the end of it, is you, you list a section for references. You know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> some of y'all are like, oh, that's why I didn't get the job. You, you usually, you got to put some references on there. And the reason that, as someone who hires people, I can tell you that references are important for me. And the reason that references are asked for by an employer is because Typically, the employer doesn't know anything about you. You can write anything on that resume that you want to write, and I don't know if it's true or not because I don't know who you are. But the reason that references are important is because I can call people who know you that can give testimony to the, rep, the, the reputation that you have, and then I can make a better decision. Now, <clears throat> as far as I know, People don't usually put people as their references who are going to speak ill of them. The other half of you are like, oh, that's why I didn't get the job. You don't put people that are going to give you a bad name as your reference. I actually had someone do that once. Funny story for a different time. But I called this person and they sang not praises, whatever the opposite of what, which struck me as odd that you would put this person on your resume. I didn't hire that person. Because a reputation matters. And you want to put people on there that will give a good reference, that, that will present you with the best reputation possible. But sometimes employers can get duped. I've been here too. Sometimes employers can call those references and those references give glowing recommendations. They speak to your rep, uh, reputation. They say you're a hard worker, a team player, always get the job done. You go above and beyond. So as a hiring person, I, I hire that person and, and I think that that, that that reputation is valid and then they get in the job and I realize that it was a false reputation. It didn't actually represent the person. When you're hiring someone, you really have to look at their reputation reputation but here's the thing with Jesus he doesn't need to ask for references when determining your standing with him he knows your reputation but he looks beyond the reputation and he sees your heart and your mind see what I'm trying to tell you is that you've got to you've got to stop letting your standard of holiness and righteousness be determined by other people's opinion of you Never let your standing with Jesus depend on what other people perceive you to be or not to be. You can be the best looking Christian to everyone else. You can pull the wool over everyone's eyes, but not Jesus. He is too holy. He is too perfect. He is too divine to, be ever, to ever be confused about your standing with him. Let me, let me say it like this. The church in the West would do well to stop judging their standard of faithfulness by what Twitter says they should be. Jesus' words serve as a reminder that ultimately it does not matter what the world thinks of us. I want you to hear that. It does not matter what the world thinks of us. It matters what Jesus thinks of us. And the question that we have to answer is whose opinion do we care more about? Because sometimes gaining a reputation in this world will mean that we are not being faithful to Jesus. And sometimes being faithful to Jesus means we will have no reputation in this world. I'm going to tell it to you straight. Our church has a reputation. It has a reputation in this city. Some people think that we are the greatest thing since sliced bread. And there are people in this city who think that we are the worst thing. 
that has come about. I try to shield you from a lot of that. I take those shots in the back first. We have a reputation. Some people say we're way too conservative because of stances that we take on issues in the Bible like sexuality and gender and what we believe about it. Some people say we're woke because we care about racial injustice and social inequalities. So I don't really know what we are. We have a reputation across the board, but I don't care about that. I care about what Jesus thinks about us as a church. But let me just say this, it is good news that Jesus knows you beyond your reputation. Because some of you had a reputation. Some of you still do, and it's not the best. Oh yeah, you, you might now be saved by grace through faith, but all those people who knew you back then don't know what God has done in your life since then. And your reputation may not be the best, but praise God that God knows who you are in spite of your reputation. So Jesus knows what this, that this church has a reputation of being alive, but he also knows that really they are dead. And so we begin to understand why Jesus uses this description of himself when writing to the church. The church is dead and they need power to come alive and that is a power that they don't have. But Jesus is the one who holds the messengers and the spirit in his hand. Dr. Tom Schreiner helps us with this. He explains it like this. He says, The seven spirits of God refers to the Holy Spirit and signifies Christ's perfection. Why does Jesus emphasize here what he, that he has the Spirit? It's because of the deadness of the church in Sardis. The church needed the power and fullness of the Spirit to become alive again. And Jesus can grant the Spirit to the church in Sardis. So what are they to do? If they're think they're alive but they're dead, what are, what's the response? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. So first, Jesus calls them to respond to this truth that they think they're alive but they're actually dead. And he begins by saying, be alert. Another way that you could translate that is wake up. Jesus says, wake up. And so what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, listen, y'all are the ones that I was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. Y'all remember Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44? It's okay if you don't. Jesus says, now concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, if this is not so many churches today, in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept it all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be, Jesus says. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be alert. Wake up. Since you don't know what day the Lord is coming, but know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have stayed alert and not let the house be broken into. This is why you are, you are also to be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So in essence, when Jesus tells the church in Sardis to wake up, Jesus is declaring to them that y'all are living like I'm not actually coming back. You're so comfortable in the here and now that you've forgotten that one day the here and now will be the there and then. This is not all there is in, in life, what we see here in this world. 
And when we live, what Jesus is teaching, what he's communicating to the church in Sardis is that when we live like this world is all that there is, then this world will be the best that we will ever get, but we will miss out on the glory of eternity with Jesus. The church has been resting as if it's made it already. Now, I, I want to be clear here. This is not like a sleep that, that David talks about in Psalm 3, a sleep that you have in the midst of a chaotic world because you believe that God's got this, right? David talks in Psalm 3, 5, says, I lay down and sleep. I wake up because the Lord sustains me, right? He's saying, I can rest because I know that God's got this and I'm depending on him. That's not the kind of sleep that, that Jesus is talking about. This is the I'm going to sleep because I've got nothing left to do sleep. Have y'all ever been there, right? You've had a busy day, you've made it through it, you lay your head at the pillow, you run through all the things you needed to get done, and you're like, ah, I've finished the task of the day, now I can close my eyes and rest. That's what the church is doing. They said, we've made it. We've done everything that we need to do, so now we can just sleep. We've made it. It's a scary thing when a church thinks that it's made it. It's a scary thing when a church thinks that it has nothing left Nothing left to do. And you know, I, I was trying to think through, I was trying to think of, man, what, what is a way to tell? What is a way to tell if a church thinks that it's done everything it needs to do? What are some of the signs that we can look for? And I started trying to think about this, and one of the things that popped into my mind is I think the clearest indication that you have as to whether a church has thought that it's made it or not is what the church fights about. What do they fight about? You see, you got some churches that are fighting about like the color of the carpet, that are fighting about how many programs we should run, who's leading them, who's going to host the next potluck, what are we going to buy the pastors for pastor appreciation, it's in October just so you know. They're fighting about budgets. They're fighting about, thank you, sis. I appreciate that. They're fighting about budgets. They're fighting about all of these inconsequential things. But what they are not fighting for is the hearts and the souls of the people that are outside their doors. They're not fighting to look more like Jesus. Listen, I, I shared this with Pastor Lance a couple weeks ago. I said I was just going to share it with him, but I'm not, I'm, I'll share it with you too. We're family, so we'll just be honest for a minute. Like, these past years have been hard. It's been hard for church. We've dealt with COVID. We've dealt a lot of internal struggles. It's been hard for me as a pastor. It's hard for my family. We've taken some shots. We've put out a lot of fires. And I've felt like my life as a pastor has been putting out fires so the church doesn't burn down. And I kind of came to the point with Jesus where I just said, I'm tired of fighting and I'm not going to fight anymore. So I'm just going to tell you as your pastor, if it ain't got to do with your discipleship or if reaching the people with the gospel, don't bring it to me. Because we have work to do and we're fighting about some silly things. I'm tired of news notifications coming across my screen that says another person was shot while we argue about things that don't matter. Some of y'all are like, I don't know what he's talking about. That's good. Then I'm not talking to you. But I just want you to know as your pastor, if it ain't about your sanctification or reaching that community out there, I don't have time for it because we can't fall asleep. We have work to do. We have a task that is before us. And this ain't all about us. What does the church fight about? See, Jesus says that the church, they think they've made it. So they're dealing with inconsequential things inside their building. And so Jesus says, y'all got to wake up. But then Jesus says, strengthen what remains. 
Another way that you could translate that is be on guard or protect what remains. And so this is the same word that, that Peter uses in 1 Peter 5, 8, where he says, be sober-minded, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis is this, is listen, you're not even paying attention and the lion's mouth is around your throat. Any life that you may have had is about to be gone. There was a story, some of you may remember it, it was of a woman. I love this story. Sometimes people are just so dumb. There's a woman who had a pet python. I'm cool if you want a pet snake. Like, that's fine. You know, I've got one in my trap still in my office. You can go get that one. <laughs> this woman had a pet python. She loved this snake. She loved it so much that she started letting it sleep in her bed with her at night. It's about a seven and a half foot long python. And she said that it was a bonding experience for the two of them. And so what the snake would do, it had the same pattern every night. The snake would first curl up on her, and then it would lay there for a little bit, and then it would crawl off beside her, and it would stretch itself out parallel and kind of lean into her. And so she took this as, oh, the snake's cuddling me. And this woman loved her snake. But after a few weeks of doing this, the owner got concerned because the snake had stopped eating. And this concerned the snake owner, so she took it to the vet. And the, the vet was really confused. She was like, there's no reason your snake shouldn't be eating. We've done the test. We've done blood. I don't know what you do for a snake. They did all the stuff that they're supposed to do. And they're like, the snake is healthy. And so the vet said, well, let me do one last thing. Talk to me about the snake's routine each day. And so the lady tells about it, you know, in the morning I get up, I I do this. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, make sure it's got its heat lamp. Yeah, that's good. You know, in the evening we do this. Yeah, that's great. And then she got to the bedtime routine. And she said, well, at night, like we we curl up in bed. And the vet said, hold on. What do you mean you curl up in bed? And she said, well, well, the snake sleeps with me. And the vet looked at her and says, can I ask you a question? Does the snake curl up on you for a little while and then stretch its body out beside you? And the lady was like, yeah, that's how we cuddle. And the vet said, no, 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 that's not how you cuddle. You see, what the snake was doing, the snake was practicing how it was going to kill her. And it would curl up on its chest to see how much of its body it had to get around her chest to squeeze it. And then it would lay itself next to her and stretch out to make sure it was long enough to eat her entire body. Now, luckily, this snake owner found out before it was too late. But if that one didn't get you, I'll do you one better. There was a a case of a man named Michael Prazek. Michael lived in the Czech Republic, and back in 2016, Michael began having some problems with the law. And the reason for this was because he owned a lion and a lioness that he had somehow bought. He'd built enclosures for them on his property. He was caring for them. And so some people started complaining. Their complaint wasn't originally that you had lions. The complaint was that you're building cages and you don't have a uh, building permit. Perspective way off there, but... That's what he was getting in trouble for. So the law is coming around saying, hey, you can't build these enclosures. And they finally said, you probably shouldn't have the lion and the lioness either. Funny story, they actually, uh, he took the lioness on a walk with a leash and a bicyclist went by and the lion swatted the bike out from under it. The bicyclist fell and the authorities labeled it a traffic incident. He loved these lions. 
He played with them. He fed them. But the problem was the authorities couldn't take it because where they were in the Czech Republic, there weren't zoos and there were no sanctuaries where it would be safe to put a lion and a lioness. So really the only options the authorities had was to let him keep these two lions. And Michael treated these as pets. It's a true story. He treated them as pets, took them on walks, fed them, wrestled with them. Michael loved these lions. The problem was these were not pets. Both of these lions, the lion and the lioness, were born in the wild. And though Michael had grown an affinity for these lions, they had not grown an affinity for him. And one day, while he was attempting to play with them, the the lions mauled him to death. I tell you both these stories, here's what I'm getting at. There are some things that you just cannot play with. There are some things that you cannot ignore. And what Jesus is telling the church is this. He's saying, listen, you need to be on guard. You are not as safe as you think you are. Let me just preach it how I feel it. There are some people right here, right now in this room who you need to hear this. You need to stop playing with your sin. You need to stop thinking you can manage it and tame it and walk it on a leash that you can curl up with it in your bed and that it's not going to devour you. Some of you need to realize that for you this morning, the lion's mouth is around your neck and as much as you think you have tamed it, you are not strong enough to tame this lion. And for some of us this morning, the holiest thing that we could do is acknowledge that we are not as holy as we act like we are. For some of us, the holiest thing that we could do is bring those sins that we are trying to keep in darkness into the light, gather some brothers and sisters around us, and see if we can't put those things to death. Can we, can we just all admit this morning that, that not a one of us has made it? Not one of us. All right, the church is not for people who are practically holy. The church is made up of a bunch of messy people who are trying to look a little bit more like Jesus every day. So not one of us should be shocked when someone else has to bring their sin into the light. And if you are, you may not be as honest as you think you are about your own sin. Let me move on before I get in trouble. Jesus says, be alert. Jesus says, be on guard. And then Jesus says, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Now that word found is really interesting. For I have not found your works complete by God. That word found in the Greek is actually a judicial word. Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis that I'm examining the evidence. And, and the evidence is contradicting the reputation. You know, law is a very interesting thing. I joked with Aliyah all the time that if I wasn't going to be a pastor, I'd be a lawyer. Maybe there's some similarity there, I don't know. But there are a lot of rules when it comes to practicing law. One rule, it's actually rule 608. The fact that it's 608 tells you that there's a lot of rules. And it's a rule about a witness's character. And part of the rule speaks about reputation or opinion evidence. So, so here's what, what's interesting about that, that rule as you practice law. It basically says that a witness's credibility can be supported or attacked when they're testifying. Right? So if, I, if, if, I, if I'm presenting a case and I've got a witness, I can bring them up, let them speak to the defendant. But, but, but if they speak to the defendant, then someone can attack their credibility. But the only way that evidence for the truthfulness of a person's reputation can come into play is if their reputation has been attacked. So in other words, if, if I'm on the stand and I'm speaking to someone's character and nobody 
accuses me of being an unreputable source, then no one can bring any evidence in to say that I'm reputable. But if you attack my character, then the other attorney can bring in some evidence to say, no, 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 this reputation is valid. That's not fair. So if you're going to say something unreliable, if you're going to say someone is unreliable and their reputation is unfounded, you have to be prepared for the other eternity to bring evidence to prove that their reputation is trustworthy. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus is saying, I know your reputation, but I've also examined the evidence. And when I look at the evidence, I have found that what God has called you to do, you have not done. And you are not living up to your reputation. And so Jesus, being the gracious and merciful God that he is, gives them a chance to repent. And look, look at the beginning of verse 3. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Now, when we read this call to repentance, it's actually a little similar, if you remember, to the call that was issued to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.5. Remember Ephesus, they'd abandoned their first love. They were killing it with the works games. God knew their works. He knew their endurance. He knew, knew how they were fighting and holding fast for the truth, but they'd abandoned their first love. And God says, remember then how far you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What Jesus says here to this church is similar. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And so Jesus calls the church to remember that it, that it is not, it's not made it yet. And Jesus is calling them to remember what it is that made them who they are in the first place. Jesus says, remember the gospel message that you were given, that you received, and that you once lived in light of. See, here's the thing. I, church in Sardis is fascinating to me. And I, I wonder if the church in Sardis, when they got a reputation for being alive, they started to place their hope in their re- reputation of being alive rather than in the God of grace who made them alive. See, here's, here's what I'm getting at. When we lose our grasp of the gospel it's easy to start putting things in its place. It's easy to start worshiping the blessings of God rather than the God of grace who gives blessings. It's easy to worship the gifts given to us rather than the God of grace who gives those gifts. It is easy to start worshiping the good things we are known for rather than the God of grace who has made us known. And what I'm, what I'm getting at is that the gospel is the only thing that will keep us grounded. When we are tempted to think that we are better than we are, it is the gospel that reminds us that the best we have is filthy rags and that there is no one righteous, no, not one. When we are tempted to believe that we have within us the ability to get to God, it's the gospel reminds us of Jesus' words where he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. When we are tempted to believe that we have sinned too much, or done too many wrongs to ever be loved by God. It is the gospel that reminds us that God's love for us is so great that he sent his son to take the penalty for our sin. And as he died on that cross and rose from the grave, God showed how much he loved us. When we are tempted to believe that there is no hope in this world, it is the gospel that reminds us of Jesus' victory over sin, Satan, and the grave as he walked out of that tomb. It's the gospel. We need the gospel. And what Sardis needs to remember is that their reputation won't save them. Their recognition won't save them. Their works won't save them. But Jesus, 
He's strong to save. I'm going to tell you, when you stand before the Lord, he ain't going to ask what your mama thinks. He ain't going to ask what I think. He ain't going to ask what your spouse thinks or what your children thinks. He's not going to care about your reputation. He's going to look and see whether you have trusted in the saving message of the gospel. But Jesus warns them at the end of verse 3 what will happen if they don't repent of their sin. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, if you don't wake up, he says, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Now we have to mention that, that this statement and even the call to stay alert and to be on guard, it would have probably a deeper meaning for Sardis than it has for you and I. You see, the city of Sardis was actually believed to be an impenetrable city. No enemy force could conquer it. They believed that. It was a city that was at the top of some cliffs that many believed to be unscalable, except two times in its history they were scaled and the city was defeated. It was captured by Cyrus the Persian in 549 B.C. and by Antiochus in 218 B.C. So a few hundred years before John writes the book of Revelation, the city knows that it has been conquered. And in both times it was conquered, this is history, it was conquered because the city was not on guard. Both attacks happened at night when the guards who should have been watching the cliffs were sleeping. And the enemy scaled the cliffs, entered the city, and conquered the people before they had even known what had happened. It happened twice in their history. And Jesus is playing off that history and is basically saying, you are making the same mistake that your city has made in its history. You are letting your guard down and you are not taking seriously the threat that is at your door. But in this case, it's not a foreign nation. It's not an enemy army. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is Jesus who is saying that if you do not repent, I will come in the night and my judgment will be fierce. But there is some good news for the church. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes and they walk with me in white because they are worthy. And so again, Jesus is speaking in imagery that the city would understand. One of the things that Sardis was known for in the ancient world was Sardis was known for its wool production. They made some of the finest wool garments that you could get. And it was expensive to buy their clothes. But no one would purchase stained clothes. No one would purchase dirty clothes. Dirty clothes did not present a level of prestige and honor that the people wanted when they bought wool clothing. But the picture goes even deeper than that because as is frequent in Scripture, soiled clothes represent sin and iniquity. And so we see this with the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 3 verses 3 and 4 where it says, Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him and said, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. So Jesus is saying that there are a few of you who are not living in sin. And here's the promise that Jesus gives them. You will walk with me in white because you are worthy. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that they have done enough good stuff to earn their way into heaven. They didn't possess the white robes 
because they put the white robes on. They didn't clothe themselves. We'll see in the very next verse that it's Jesus who dresses us in robes of righteousness. And so what Jesus is saying is that these few had walked in a manner worthy of the gospel. They had pursued righteousness and were seeking to be faithful. They were worthy not because they did everything right, but because they were holding fast to the one who had done everything right. They were clinging to Jesus and valuing and honoring the righteousness that he had imparted to them. And so here's the promise in verse 5. Jesus says, In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. That's That's incredible. I mean, did you catch it? He says, to the one who conquers, to the one who holds fast to Jesus, Jesus will dress them in white clothes. Jesus will dress them in his righteousness. And even more, he says, I will never erase his name from the book of life. Now, I got to mention this. Some have read that and they see that as an argument that you can lose your salvation. They look at Sardis and say, well, see, Sardis was saved, but they're, they're dead now, so they're losing their salvation. And I just want to say that we know from elsewhere in Scripture that no one can lose their salvation if they truly have it. The question is not, can you lose your salvation? The question is, are you actually saved in the first place? But, but we've got to remember that Jesus isn't trying to give a theology of salvation here. He's speaking to those whose names are written in the book of life. He is trying to encourage them and say that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what trials, no matter what hardships, no matter what reputation you gain among the people around you, none of that matters because if you hold fast to me, I will guarantee that your name will stay in the book of life. No matter what. You will be secure for eternity. But I love this. This is the part that got me. And I'm going to bring this thing home. He says, I will acknowledge your name before my Father and the angels. And so in some sense, and I don't have enough time to really go into it, there are competing reputations here. Whose reputation, who does it matter the most to give you your reputation? Because they were banking themselves on the reputation they had from the world. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 but, but what about your reputation with me? Because there are some who hold fast to me who, who I will vouch for them. I will vouch for them and acknowledge their name before my Father and the angels. Jesus is saying that for those who trust in me, for those who hold on to me, that I will acknowledge your name before God. Let me try to paint this picture for you real quick. There will come a day when you will stand in the courtroom before God the Father. Every one of us, myself, you, every one of us, there will come a day when we will stand in the courtroom before God the Father. And we will give an account for our life, for every action and for every word. We will give an account before the holiest judge that has ever existed. And the Father will say to us, why should I let you into my heaven? What evidence do you have to offer up? And here's what this verse is tailored to teach us. That before you have a chance to speak, your advocate will stand on your behalf. And he will say, Father, I have reviewed the evidence. And this person here, this person is a vile person. 
They have sinned against you. They have delighted in wickedness. They have tried to take your throne and play God in your own life. There was a time when they hated you and wanted nothing to do with you. They do not deserve to be here, but they trusted in me. They knew that I was what they could not be. I was faithful. They knew that I did what they could not do. I kept the law. They knew that I loved you the way that they were created to, but they couldn't do it. They failed. But I died in their place. So any judgment that you have against them, I have already paid that debt. They might not deserve to be here, but look at them, Father. They wear my robes. And account, on account of me and my death and my resurrection and the faith that they have in me, I will vouch for them. And Father, you willed that none of the ones that you had given me would ever be lost. And I am acknowledging and delighting in the fact that this one is mine. And do you know what the Father will say? Welcome, good and faithful servant. And it is not because you were righteous enough. It's because Jesus was. And so when I read that, it just leads me to acknowledge that like, I don't really care what the people of this world have to say about me. I'm not overly concerned about my reputation in this world. And Jesus, I think he's okay with that because what this text teaches us is that the only one who truly needs to acknowledge us is Jesus Christ. And if you have all the praise from all the people of this world, but you are not acknowledged by Jesus... You've lost everything. But if Jesus knows your name, and if your name is written in the book of life, life that is given because you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the rest of the world may hate you and despise you and want to take everything from you, but you have everything. And like Jesus says in verse 6, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, Jesus is saying there are other churches that will be like Sardis before this thing is done. There are churches that will have a reputation of being alive, but they are actually dead. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't be that church. Be on guard, be alert, hold fast to the gospel above everything else. And I will dress you in my righteousness. And I will acknowledge your name before the Father and his angels. There's nothing better than that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. God, we are tempted on a daily basis to care more about what other people think than what you think. We are tempted to cater to the cause of this world that to be faithful you have to look like this, to be faithful you have to do this, to be faithful you have to vote like this. And God, I pray that we would be able to push all of that nonsense aside and to remember that what defines us as your children is that we refuse to let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would remind us that our reputation in this world does not matter as long 
as we are acknowledged by you. But God, I do believe that if we are acknowledged by you and living faithful, that there will be some who see that faithfulness in this world. They will see in how we live the gospel that we believe and they will want to know a little bit more about you. And so God, I pray that you would give us grace to be faithful. I pray that it will never be said of New Breed Church that they have a reputation for being alive, but they are dead. And so help us, God, to hold fast to the gospel, to realize that the task that you have set before us is not yet finished. Give us grace to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this time, church, I'm going to give us a minute to, to just reflect.